right. What a great video. Shout out to Jeremy uh, and our tech team for getting that put together for us. That's, that's so fun. It is so great to see the children at home just speaking from their heart about their moms. And it just makes me, makes me miss you guys more. So I know uh, those of you who are out there catching us, depending on what platform you're on, Facebook or YouTube, um, it's nice, and we're doing the best that we can to put together a decent uh, production here for you, but I miss you guys. I miss being able to hug you and shake hands and high-five and just see your smiling faces here. As Pastor Gabe said, the cutout smiley face that I look at for the camera is just not the same as seeing your faces. So very soon, hasn't happened yet, watch our social media. We'll talk about when it's going to happen, and we'll do this kind of in an orderly way. So it won't catch you by surprise you'll know. Um, happy Mother's Day from the, from the video and just from our heart. Happy Mother's Day. All you moms out there who just pour out and pour out and pour out, there's no, I, th- I don't think there's any better earthly example of a Christ-like nature and attitude than that of a mom who just, their, their heart is for the well-being of their family, for their children and their loved ones, and it's so genuine, and they just pour out, and they pour out, and they pour out. So this is a day where we just especially celebrate that in a mom's heart. So happy Mother's Day. Thank you for spending some of it here with us, and I hope to see you, uh, some of you, that is, soon as you come and pick up your gift from us. Um, Let's get going on the message, because I've got, uh, I believe, it's a good message for you. I know it's one that excites me as we've gone through this teaching on the minor prophets. And that's our series. It's called the Trey Asar, which is Hebrew for the 12. And it's talking about the 12 minor prophets. But as we've gone through this, I personally have just been enjoying it. Let us know in the comments if the teaching, if there's too much teaching and your head is spinning, or if there's not enough, or just how you feel about the way we're delivering the Word of God. We are a teaching church, and my heart is to develop a culture where you are hungry for teaching, hungry to know the Word of God yourself, and then equipped to study it and to learn about what God says for you and do it yourself. So that's why we teach the way we do. I hope that you're enjoying it, but give us feedback. We'd always love to hear. Normally, I hear amens and yeses and noes and nodding heads throughout Right now, I got nothing. I always have a constant smile right there. So that's what I'm going with until I hear otherwise. Hey, um, the Treasar, the 12, the minor prophets, these are a group of prophets, not minor because of the impact of their teaching, as we'll see here in just a minute for sure. They're called minor because of the, the brevity or the shortness of their teaching. Not so much that it's, that it's short in in meaning, again, it's just concise, to the point, more like a scalpel than an axe. Um, and they were delivered at a specific time for a specific people in a specific situation. And really, those words were able just to cut deeply as needed. And they had the very power of God behind them. So these prophets came together and, again, sent to different nations at different times. And that's what we're going to look at today, or in this series, that's what we're looking at. So we started out with the prophet Ovadia, or Obadiah, then we went to Joel last week. Okay, this week, we're going to talk about one of the more obscure prophets, maybe some of you had heard, he's a guy named Jonah, 
And he has this little story about a fish that he deals with. Maybe you're familiar with it. I don't know. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But let's get started. Let's jump right in. Hey, spoiler alert, first of all, the book of Jonah is four chapters. But of those four chapters, it's an easy read. I encourage you to do that at home. Of those four chapters, there are five words of prophecy in it. Five Hebrew words. We expanded a little bit because of vowels and and adjectives and things like that. But um, it's basically five words in Hebrew, and it reads like this. This is the prophecy that Jonah delivers. It's actually chapter 3, verse 4, when we get to it. It says this, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the end of it. Mic drop, walk off stage. That is the end of his prophecy to Nineveh. We'll talk more about Nineveh here in a minute, but the result of that is powerful. The result of that, we see the king of Assyria, which is a pagan nation, and Nineveh, which is a pagan and then some city, um, completely and almost instantaneously turn towards God. A pagan city, uh, they were polytheistic, worshiping gods from all over the place and especially worshiping their fleshly way of life, immediately turn to God. That is a powerful word, five simple words, but carrying the power of God, and they accomplished so much. Let's take a closer look about this story of Jonah. Now, Jonah uh, is rich in theology. It is rich in application for our lives. Um, There is so much to learn from the book of Jonah. However, before we get to that, I think we have to get past the whale in the room, if you will, and talk about the question that's probably on everybody's mind. No matter where you are, you're probably at least thinking, is that true? Is that story about the whale? Did that really happen? Could that really happen? A man swallowed by a whale, and he lives. Not only lives, but spit out on shore and walks off in his life like usual. We need, I think we need to lay some groundwork to our understanding of that before we can really grasp the significance of the prophet Jonah and of his teaching. So let's take a look at it here. So follow me along. I'm going to lay a little, again, groundwork for this. When we look at the Bible, and we're trying to determine, first of all, every word that's in the Bible is spoken and ordained and written down exactly as God willed. So the words all come from God. However, within that, there are several different, we call them genres, and it's a way of writing a book. You know, the Bible is a collection of books, and each one of those books is written from a different viewpoint to a different person. And if you're looking at literature in general, the Word of God, collection of books, is literature. And as that, it follows the standard rules of literature and literal interpretation, more accurately. So we need to know the genre. The genre is, for instance, it's this, an encyclopedia. An encyclopedia, if you were to read that, you would not read that the same way that you would read a book of poetry. And you would not read the book of poetry the same way that you read, say, an autobiography of someone. Or you wouldn't read that the same way you would a fantasy novel or a uh, a fictional novel. 
you wouldn't read those all the same way. You would approach each one of those with an understanding. If I'm reading it in the encyclopedia or, say, a history textbook, this is factually based information. And you would read it that way. So it's important to understand that as we look at Jonah, that the, the Bible is no different than that. There are several different genres in the Bible. There is historical narrative, books like Genesis, like the first half of Exodus, like Ruth, like Acts, that describe things that happened. Okay, that's a narrative or a historical narrative meant to be read and interpreted as history. Okay, then there's the books of the law, second half of Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, that's law, and that's meant to be written and read just like that, just like it's law. Then there's books of wisdom. Wisdom are Job, uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Um, these things are wisdom literature. It's a good idea to do it this way, right? Poetry then. Poetry is Psalms, Song of Solomon. We have prophecy, obviously all the prophets that we're speaking about uh, in this series, plus the major prophets. We have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the word of, of the, the seeing, okay, what, what Christ did on earth. That's the gospel. Those are accounts, firsthand accounts of things that Jesus did, okay? They're meant to be read like that. Epistles, which are letters, which are written from one person to another, instructing them, churches in most cases, about how to handle situations, how to live your life. That's an epistle. It's, it's advice. Then the next one is apocalyptic, which is Daniel, Revelation, parts of Ovadia that we started out with. Um, and those are apocalyptic, meaning concerning the end of things. Then we have subgenres like parables and allegory and things like that. But those are the main ones. Now, according to the Oxford Center for Biblical Studies, okay, a think tank who goes in and they look at Scripture and they decide what genre it falls into based on whether it fits these certain literary guidelines. They have looked at the book of Jonah, and, of course, it's partly prophecy. It's five words of prophecy, but the rest of it is historical narrative, meaning it can be backed up from outside sources, historical sources that aren't strictly from within the text. It can be backed up as factual. So we look at the book of Jonah as if it is a factual account of prophetic word that was given to a nation. Okay. So with that in mind, let's take a look at these three main questions with regards to the fish story in Jonah. Right. Could a whale really swallow a man? Could a man really live three days inside? And could a man be spat out intact and go on with his business? Okay, let's look at those questions. First of all, Scripture does not say that it was a whale. Okay, if you've got the King James Version, they have decided to interpret that word as whale, and we see that used that way. And, but in fact, in Hebrew, it simply says fish. Now, the Hebrews did have a word for whale, but they didn't choose to use that, meaning most likely it wasn't a whale, but it was a fish of some type, okay? We see stories all throughout uh, not only history, but uh, mythology, Greek mythology especially, is rich with stories about people being swallowed by, by sea monsters or whales or fish of different kinds. We see uh, Heracles, Heracles, uh, Greek mythology hero, gets swallowed by a whale, 
and then actually cuts his way out of it. Uh, it doesn't say whale there either. It says uh, a sea monster, I believe. Hacks his way out with his sword. A very heroic thing to do. Then we see Perseus and Andromeda later. Andromeda gets eaten by a fish, and Perseus, in heroic fashion, saves her by cutting her out of the belly of the fish. Okay, so we, we see these stories. Again, Greek mythology. Now, in the book of Jonah, slightly different. This is the only one where the hero, Jonah, the man getting swallowed, doesn't have to fight his way out. It's by God's will that, he is actually, that the whale actually gives him up. Let's look at some modern examples here real quickly. A natural historian, his name is Dr. Pusey. Dr. Pusey uh, wrote this natural historian. He looks at biblical stories from a context of, of science and documenting history. And in his commentary on Jonah, he brings up this story. Now, true story, he documented this, 1758. 1758, in stormy weather, a sailor fell overboard from a frigate in the Mediterranean, okay? 1758, he falls overboard. A shark, documented that it's a shark, was close by, which, as he was swimming and crying for help, took him in his wide throat so that he forthwith disappeared. Shark swallowed him whole. The captain had a gun which stood on the deck and he discharged it at the fish, big deck gun, shot it at the fish, which struck it so that it cast out the sailor which it had in its throat, who was taken up alive and little injured. Alive, injured, I'm sure, but little injured. The fish was harpooned, taken up on the frigate, and dried. The captain made a present of the fish to the sailor, who then traveled throughout Europe with the fish as an exhibition. Kind of a sideshow sort of a thing, right? The sailor went around Europe exhibiting this fish that when it was dried, which probably shrunk a little bit, was 20 feet long and 9 feet wide, weighed almost 4,000 pounds. Traveled Europe with this. Now, fast forward again, late 19th century. Late 19th century whale fisherman, his name was James Bartley. He is documented to have fallen overboard during a whale hunting expedition, they were hunting sperm whales. Sperm whales are known to eat giant squid and seals and other extremely large things. And he was swallowed whole by a sperm whale. Now, his shipmates assumed probably that he was dead, but they had a job to do. They caught that, that whale put it on the deck, and began to do what whalers do. They began to dress it out and, and cut it open to prepare it. 36 hours later, they actually got to James Bartlett inside this whale, and he was alive. He was alive but blind. The stomach acid had made him blind and had actually bleached his skin. But he's documented to have returned to work at whatever capacity three weeks later. And his tombstone later on, which you can still see, reads, James Bartley, a modern-day Jonah. Crazy stories. Here's a couple pictures of what it might have looked like. The first one here, this is a painting, obviously, of, of the fish, not necessarily a whale, but the big fish spitting Jonah up onto the land. Then we have an actual photo 
of what's called a whale shark. I don't know how well that translates to you, but you can see that in scale to the diver right above it. Now, whale sharks are very peaceful. They don't eat people. That's why he's swimming right there. But one way or another, he could easily fit down inside of that fish there. Okay, so yes, it's possible that this could have happened. Debatable? Yes, it actually is easily debatable, but it's possible. And is it miraculous? Absolutely. Miraculous, yes. But here's why I believe it, more so than pointing back to uh, historical narratives that are hundreds of years old. I believe it's possible because Jesus did too. Jesus not only believed it was possible, he believed it happened. Now, Jesus in his teaching when he was walking on the earth during his ministry only mentions four prophets during his teaching. One of them is Jonah. And we'll see later that there's a parallel between Jesus and Jonah. But Jesus refers to Jonah in the first scripture I have for you, Luke 11.30. Jesus says, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Okay, so Jesus acknowledging Jonah. Now, let's go a little bit further and put a point on this. Matthew 12, verse 40 For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Folks, I believe it because Jesus believed it and Jesus quoted it. Now, let's move past that now. We've we've talked about the whale in the room. Let's talk about who Jonah is and set that up so that we can see the significance of his teaching. Jonah was a prophet. Okay, a prophet living in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, we talked about the divided kingdoms. Go back and check last week's message if you want a refresher on that. We talked about this divided kingdom. It was approximately 825 to about 760 or so B.C. that he lived. It was actually a contemporary meeting. He, he prophesied at about the same time as Hosea and Amos, which we'll talk about next week or in the coming weeks. Now, he prophesied, lived during the reign of Herobam II. Okay, if you remember last week's, we talked about Herobam I, who was the rebellious rebellion leader who split off and established the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, that's where Jonah lives. That's where he's from. We fast forward, though, to the, the reign of Herobam II. Okay, several generations removed, but Herobam II. We're talking a couple hundred years later. Now, Scripture says he's an evil king before the Lord. We'll talk more about this a little bit later. Born in the town, this is Jonah, born in the town of Gath-Hefer in the Galilee region of Israel. It also says he's the son of Amittai. Now, who's Amittai? We don't really know. But common practice back then was to identify people by where they were from and who their father was. That way, when you saw accounts of them in other places in Scripture or history, you knew which Jonah you were talking about. He was a fairly common name back then. We want to make sure we had the right Jonah, and this is, this is why the book of Jonah opens up that way. Now, let's talk about who Jonah was before our story unfolds, right? We'll talk about the story in a minute, but who was Jonah before that? Where did he come from? Did he just pop on the scene? Let's talk about Hebrew tradition. According to Hebrew tradition, Scripture doesn't teach us this. A lot of times we rely on that traditional Jewish teaching or history in order to piece together some of the puzzle here. According to Hebrew tradition, 
uh, Jonah rose to prominence when he was chosen by Elisha to travel and anoint Jehu as the king of Israel. Okay. He was from a school of prophets. Now, we remember from last week or a couple weeks ago when we saw this prophetic school that was started by Samuel and then taken over and continued a little bit by Elijah, a little bit by Elisha. But this prophetic school continued, and it raised up these men who had a heart for God, who had a passion for God, and it taught them how to harness that gift of prophecy within. And it's this gift of prophecy that Jonah is, is a part of when he's dispatched out to go. That's his first assignment as a student, as a grad student, if you will. Here's your first assignment. I want you to go, travel, and anoint this man as king. Here's how Scripture picks it up, right? 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I'll read it to you. Now, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets, that's these, these prophets from the school, in our case it's Jonah, and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And I love this last line. It's my favorite line. Then... Open the door and flee, and do not wait. <laughs> we have other accounts here, which we'll actually read about later uh, in another message, where he actually does just that. He flees because he's not sure how the king is going to take this. That's how you earn your stripes as a fledgling prophet, by the way. Send you into the lion's den. Let's see what happens. But what happened is Jehu is anointed as king. He accepts that, and through that then, Jonah gains his, his credibility, if you will, as a prophet. Now, so that's, that's how he kind of rose to the forefront here. He's living in the kingdom of northern Israel at the time, okay? There has been a succession of kings since Jeroboam I, and each one expanding in some way the kingdom of Israel. Now, not expanding through God's will, expanding through this idea of imperialism and conquer, actually spreading their influence throughout. It's been expanding. In fact, at this time, the kingdom of Israel is the biggest it's been since before this split, since all the way back to the times of Solomon. It has expanded and it has grown. And this prosperity has really, though, resulted in this materialistic culture. Even though they were Jews by heritage, they were no longer strictly focused on God, but on profit and expansion, and gaining money in this materialistic culture. Um, we learn from the prophet Amos, which we'll talk about later, and, and also Nahum, um, that they thrived on injustice to the poor and the oppressed. That's quite a condemnation. You thrive on the oppression of others. So you would think that a hometown, homegrown prophet like Jonah would have plenty to say to his own people. He grew up there. He sees what's happening around him. You would think if he was going to prophesy, it would be words to his own people. But God sometimes has another plan. He is, Jonah is considered a prophet to Israel, but not because of what he spoke to them, but because of what he spoke to a pagan nation nearby. And the result of the pagan nation 
and how they turn to God. We'll talk about that here in a second. This unlikely recipient, which is Nineveh and Assyria next door, uh, an enemy to Israel, receiving the words of Jonah and taking that correction and turning to God is something that accomplished far more than Jonah's words to his own country would have. In fact, the author of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, says this, God's ways are as mysterious as the pathways of the wind. God's ways are mysterious, but they're always good. And he always has a plan and a thought and a goal in mind that we could never wrap our minds around. Our part in it is to simply be obedient and watch what he does. We're blessed to be used by him to accomplish that. So let's take a look at the scriptures. Let's actually see the story of Jonah and how it unfolds. Starts out like this, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. All right, if you're a prophet trained in prophecy, focused on hearing the words of God, when you hear that, it seems like it would be pretty clear, right? Okay, I hear what I'm supposed to do. I'll go. That's my job. I'm a prophet. I heard from God. I'll deliver it. Seems pretty straightforward. Do you think Jonah receives it and acts on it like that? Jonah's response, we assume from this, and we'll see later in Scripture that we know that's true, that he argues with God about this. Basically like a child saying, well, why? Why send me? Why should I have to go? You know they're not going to listen. We infer that he's arguing with God. But here's the result of this. Jonah chapter 1, verse 3 says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish. That's in modern-day Spain, by the way, thousands of miles away. Paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here's a map of what this region looked like. I don't know how well it translates on your screen, but over here on the right, you see Persia, Syria, Syria, Babylonia, all all antagonistic or, or enemies of Israel. Israel is just this small area where the big red arrow starts, where it says Joppa and Jerusalem. That's Israel. He gets on a boat, Jonah gets on a boat, and he's heading to Tarshish. See that dot all the way over in the left side of your, of your screen? That's Tarshish. That is thousands of miles away. He is literally heading in the opposite direction that God has called him to go. In fact, here's a picture of modern-day Joppa. If you ever get the chance to go to Israel, you'll see a picture like this. In fact, there's a little town square with a statue of Jonah and the whale in it. It's an amazing little port city, beautiful port city. That's what it looks like today. So let's move on. Why now did Jonah flee? Jonah was told by God to just go do this, and his response immediately is to rise up and flee. Well, here's, here's what was going on then. The kingdoms of Israel and Assyria were enemies. They were enemies. And not only were they enemies, but Assyria was a pagan nation. They didn't follow the God of Israel. So you have this, this Hebrew prophet being sent into an enemy nation to deliver a word from a God they don't follow and a word of condemnation. Apparently of condemnation is what he thought here. It would have been a death sentence. He thought, they're just going to kill me. 
Why would I go? They're just going to kill me for being there. So he decides he's going to flee instead. Jonah wanted God to smite the Assyrians. In fact, if it was up to him, that's how our story would unfold. He would deliver his word to them. God would immediately strike them down and move on. That's what Jonah had in his mind that he wanted to see. But somehow he suspected in the back of his mind that that's not how it would go down. He thought, oh, God's just going to be merciful. He's going to do what he does. We'll talk more about that later. When we rebel against God, though, he will do whatever it takes to get our attention. And here's how God gets Jonah's attention. So Jonah has paid his fare, and he boards the ship, and he's telling them where he's going and why he's doing it. He says, I'm, I'm fleeing from God. Well, they don't much care about that as long as he pays his fare. He's just a passenger on their ship. Jonah 1.4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. So he boards the ship. They head out into the Mediterranean, heading for Spain thousands of miles away, and they run into this huge storm. Jonah 1.5 reads like this, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw, a, they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Where else do we see someone falling asleep in the middle of a storm? A supernatural peace, even in this time of when he's literally fleeing from God. Now let's talk about these sailors. These sailors were a collection of men from all over the known world, worshiping gods from all over the place. So they all had gods that they worshiped, but very rarely was it the God of the Hebrews. And this was an unusually violent storm. They were used to storms in the Mediterranean. This was unusually violent, so much so that they were willing to throw their very livelihood, that which they were getting paid, the cargo, toss it into the ocean to try and save ourselves. They were in a panic, and this was a, an incredible storm, not just a little bit. Jonah 1.6, so the captain, seeing Jonah sleeping down in the hold, the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. If you're looking at the scripture, that God there is small g, meaning any of the gods, we don't care who your God is, call on him. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. So he gets up and he starts joining him. Meanwhile, the sailors get together and they start casting lots. Casting lots is essentially, we would see it as rolling the dice to see what they tell them about who's to blame for this and what should they do about it. So this is where, this is where we are. Now, they believed, as many did in that time, that, that God would actually divinely intervene and cause the lots to respond in such a way to, to actually tell them what was going on. Well, their lots point them to Jonah point them to Jonah as the source of all this that they're going through, and they go to Jonah and they demand an answer. Now, they know that he's been fleeing God. They know that. So they go to him. Who are you? What have you done? Jonah 1.9 says, He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now they know. He, the Lord God of heaven, the God of the Hebrews, and he's been fleeing, and they know that now 
He's the cause of all this. Jonah 1.11, so they said to him, what should we do to you that by the sea, that the sea may become calm for us? What should we do to you? Not what should we do, how should we pray? What should we do to you? That's an ominous sign when you're on the ship in the middle of a storm. For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Jonah knows now he can't escape God's wrath. He's been outed. God certainly knows he's there. And he's got to do something. So he responds like this. Jonah 1.12. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. But here's the thing. Even these sailors don't want to do that. Even though he says that's, that's going to give you respite from this storm, they don't want to do that. It's a death sentence. They don't want his blood on their hands. So they try to weather the storm as best they can but they fail. They can't. They see that it's a lost cause. They're going to go down with the ship if they don't do something. Jonah 1.15 says, So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging immediately. I added the word immediately, but it wasn't later on the sea stops. It immediately stops, thereby illustrating the wrath of God and the mercy of God. At the same time, Jonah just like Jesus, willingly gave himself, reluctantly, yes, but willingly in the end, give himself up to save them, those who knew the God of Israel and those who didn't. He simply gave himself because he knew that was his destiny in order to save them. The sailors immediately see the power of the God of the Hebrews, capital G God of the Hebrews. Jonah 1.16, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. See, his death and the immediate calming of the sea convinced the men that God was just and merciful at the same time. Now, classical biblical understatement right here. Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. There's a little more to that story, do you think? We're going to talk about it here in a minute. We move on, though, to chapter 2, and chapter 2 consists entirely of Jonah's prayer. Jonah's prayer of repentance and thanksgiving for a deliverance that he knows is coming. And he prays all of chapter 2 takes place inside the fish. So inside the fish, he's praying repentance. He's acknowledging that God is sovereign He's asking for deliverance and giving praise and thanksgiving while still in the belly for the deliverance that he knows God will give to him because God is merciful. Now that is a model for our repentance prayer. If you're ever praying for uh, repentance, here's how it looks. I have failed, I am sorry, but you are good and I will try to do better because I know that you will deliver me. And that's exactly how Jonah prays. Last verse of chapter 2 reads like this, Jonah 2.10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Immediate deliverance through Jonah's repentance. Jonah chapter 3.1.2 starts out like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Think God's got his attention now? Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. This time, Jonah listens. 
Now, depending on the map, where you feel that the whale vomited Jonah back onto the land, it was either a 400 or a 500-mile trek by foot walking to Nineveh from where Jonah was, was put onto land. Now, Scripture says Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. We know from history, a three-day's walk, by the way, what they're talking about there is the length of time it takes you to walk around the perimeter of the city. Three days it, it would take somebody to walk around. That's about 60 miles in diameter. That's a pretty big city, especially for the time. Population over 120,000. It was the biggest city in the, in the known world at that particular point. Herodotus and Aristotle, both outside secular scholars, describe it as lawless and sinful and deeply, deeply pagan. This is the city of Nineveh that Jonah's being tasked to walk to. Now, he arrives at the city. His face most likely bleached because we see that happening with things that are inside whales with the stomach acid or inside fish. Um, probably bleached. So he had probably bleached skin. The word of what had happened to him had already reached Nineveh. Possibly the other sailors or somebody got sent ahead. Jonah probably wasn't traveling super fast after that ordeal, and he was an old man at this point anyway. So by the time he gets there, they've heard the stories. Then they see him in the flesh. He walks to the city center, a day's walk. That means he's just walking into the middle of the city a whole day, then he stops. And Jonah 3, 4, going back to the scripture we read out at the beginning, proclaims God's word to the people. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. He delivers that word and stands back saying, God, have your way. In his mind, he's expecting God to immediately smite them because he knows it's a pagan nation. There's no way they're immediately going to turn to God. What happens? They immediately repent and turn to God. In a supernatural, powerful way, those who heard Jonah immediately repented and turned to God. The word quickly reaches the king. You would think the king would be mad. The king, Jonah 6 Jonah 3, chapter 3, 6 through 9, you can read it on your own, but it says, when the word of this reached the king of Nineveh, he immediately, he rises from his throne, throws sackcloth, covers himself with sackcloth, sits on a pile of ashes, and issues a nationwide proclamation of fasting and repentance and turning to God. The last verse there, verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. He immediately sees the power of God and what God has done and immediately repents. Now, you would think that Jonah would be super happy about this. Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, if you're a prophet and you've been sent to this country to deliver a word uh, of repentance and they immediately repent, 120,000 people repent and turn to God at a word that you spoke from God, you would think you'd be pretty full of yourself and pretty happy. Mission accomplished, right? What else could you have on your resume that would be better than that? Five words, 120,000 people repented. He doesn't respond that way, though. Jonah 4, verse 1, 
but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Why would he be displeased that God's word had the exact intent that it was designed to have? We find out a little bit later. Jonah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 read like this. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious, gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who, reject, who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for death is better to me than life. He's saying, I knew you were going to do this. I wanted you to smite them and flatten the entire city, but I knew you were going to do it. That's why I fled, because I didn't want to be a part of that. And here we are. I deliver your word, and what do you do? You relent, and you don't smite them. Why don't you just kill me instead? That's exactly what Jonah is saying. God asks him, though, Jonah 4.4, asks him this question. Do you have good reason to be angry? That's a rhetorical question. But he's causing Jonah to think. Do you have good reason to be angry? God's going to show him a lesson in what that looks like. Jonah pouts, essentially, takes his toys and leaves the city, goes outside the city, sets up camp, and he watches. One of two things is going to happen. God's either going to smite the city of Nineveh, all of them, or he's going to kill Jonah. He's waiting for one of those two things to happen. It's what he asked for or what God said he would do or what he wanted one of those things. So he's sitting and he's waiting. Now he sets up a little bit of a shelter, but it's not much. They're in the desert. Sun is beating down on him. Scripture says he's there about 40 days. He spends about 40 days camped outside Nineveh just waiting for something to happen. Now he's starting to, to burn up and get tired and get, and get really, really weakened. It's misery being out there. He starts praying for relief, and God answers that prayer by causing a plant with large leaves. Some say it's a gourd. Uh, it could be a castor oil plant native to that area. Big, giant leaves that provide a lot of shade. And this supernaturally grew up and covered where Jonah was sheltered in place. Jonah is, of course, incredibly grateful for this gift. Now he's got comfort, and he's got shade, and he is extremely grateful what happens next? Here's what happens next. Chapter 4, verse 7. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. No sooner than it came and blessed Jonah, but that a worm attacked it, and it was gone. Jonah's response, Jonah 4, 8. When the sun came up, God had appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. God immediately challenges Jonah and uses this as an opportunity to teach him. Jonah chapter 4, verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, and Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Still being stubborn, still being defiant, but God rebukes him and just asks this question. He says this, You didn't cause the plant to grow. You didn't cause it to flourish. You didn't cause it to branch out and cause shade. You didn't feed it. You didn't care for it. You didn't do anything but enjoy its, its shade. Do you still have reason to be mourning its loss? Then he says this. This is how the entire book of Jonah closes out. 
God's response to Jonah after this. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, reads this way. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? This is God speaking to Jonah. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? God is saying this is a huge city who they don't know any better. Should I not have compassion on them? This is where the book of Jonah ends. It's not the logical place where you would end a story like this. There would be some sort of massive conclusion, but it ends suddenly. Without any final resolution, why is that? I believe it's because this, the book of Jonah, it's a story about Jonah, but it's not about Jonah. It's about God's goodness. It's about God's mercy and the way that if God has to, he will often break us of our pride in order to be able to use us for his purposes. We actually see that later on, Ephesians 2.10, when the Apostle Paul writes this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. It may not look like it makes sense to you. It certainly didn't to Jonah. And he rebelled, and God had to break that pride off of him, had to literally break him down to almost nothing before he would realize and be used for God's purposes. How many of us struggle and we fight and rebel against God's plan for our lives because somehow it doesn't make sense to us or it causes us to give up something that we don't want to give up? See, Jonah in this story is what we call a type, meaning a, 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 a precursor of Christ. Jonah and Christ had many things in common. Jonah is chosen by God to deliver God's word to the Gentiles in an effort to arouse jealousy in the Jews. So the end result is by delivering that word to Nineveh and their immediate repentance, it showed the nation of Israel, look how quickly a pagan nation repented at the words of God. We're not doing that, and we're God's chosen people. Had to make a light bulb go off in their head, and that's why he was a prophet to Israel. Jonah brings God's messages message to the Gentiles, but it has truth for his chosen people, just like Jesus. Jonah spends three days in what should have been his grave, but miraculously is delivered just like Jesus. Jonah's survival from the belly of the fish gave God glory and power, just as Jesus' resurrection gave God glory and power to his words. Multitudes repent and turn to God after witnessing God's power just like through Jesus. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Let's talk about how we apply a message like this to our lives today. What does a message like this mean for us today? I think it means these things. We can fight with God, but we're gonna lose. Or worse yet, maybe, we're gonna lose out. We're gonna lose out on the blessing of being used by him to accomplish his purposes. We cannot hide from God's will. He will accomplish what he wants. It will come to pass. Is he going to use you or is he going to use someone else? Are you going to kick and scream and drag your feet and try and escape? Or are you going to step into that will that God has? We cannot possibly see the ways that he will use us and our obedience for his glory. But we trust, just like this, 
that we see that it happens time and again. We can be prideful and reluctant participants, or we can be obedient servants. Which one do you want to be? God may have to, or more accurately, will refine you through processes of trials that come your way. Again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, so all of us who have, been, who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. God is and will refine you. But do you still have pride? Let me ask you. Let me give you an indication of what pride looks like. Do your prayers look like this? God, let me tell you what you want for me so that you can give it to me? Or do they look like true repentance and supplication before the Lord saying, God, I know that you know what is best for me, and that's what I want. Think about that as we pray to close. So would you pray with me? Father God, please remake us in your image. We know that we have sin that needs to be broken off, and we invite you to do so today. Like a piece of iron that needs to be cut and hammered into shape of a key before it can unlock its purpose, Lord, let us see the refining process as a gift from you and make the most of it. Not rebel against it, not fight it, but embrace it. Lord, let your will be done in my life And help me to have discernment where I'm placing my own desires against yours. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements really quickly, grab them, whatever they are, at home. Let's celebrate together. Take the body, whatever you have, bread. This is the body of Christ broken for you to make the promises of God a yes and amen for you. Take the body. And this represents the blood of Christ poured out on the cross for you in fulfillment of the new covenant, the promise of God that you are forever his. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who you are and your faithfulness today and always. May this word penetrate and touch our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
Oh, how I love you. 
say